Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, session number 18. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy. On today's show, we welcome Gillian Hellman. She is the CEO and co-founder of Realty Mogul. They are a real estate crowdfunding platform. And I really like real estate investing for a couple of reasons, but one of them is the fact that these loans are backed by an asset. You know, I have a lot of exposure to loans on Lending Club and Prosper, as many listeners know, but I also recognize that none of these loans are backed by assets, and if the borrower doesn't pay, there is really no recourse for the investor. This is not so on on real estate platforms, so I wanted to get Gillian on to talk about her company, to talk about how it all works, how uh, it works for investors, what are the kinds of properties that she has on her platform. And also we talk about where she sees her company going uh, five to 10 years down the road. Hope you enjoy the show. Okay. Welcome to the podcast, Gillian. Thanks. Okay. So let's get started with just telling the listeners what Realty Mogul does exactly. Sure. So Realty Mogul is a marketplace for accredited and institutional investors to pool money online and buy shares of pre-vetted real estate investments. And we offer both equity investments and debt investments. So we're a dual-sided marketplace. On one side of the marketplace, we've got these investors who are looking for investment opportunities. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the marketplace, we work with professional real estate companies, either borrowers who are looking for debt or sponsors who are looking for equity for their transactions. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So then how did you, I mean, how did you get, uh, how, how did you decide to create this company? I know you're the founder and you, it's, you've been in business a bit over a year, but can you tell, tell us a bit about your background and how you came to, to start Realty Mobile? Yeah, so I came out of a big banking background. You know, I was working for a, a $90 billion bank and really got sort of my, my banking chops and my underwriting chops from that experience. But I was working predominantly in wealth management. Mm-hmm working with the broker-dealer, the registered investment advisor, the real estate lenders, the trust officers. And I kept seeing this pattern of our wealthiest clients being real estate investors. You know, these are people who had come from real estate families or had made general generational wealth in real estate. And I myself came from a real estate family. So my grandfather was a developer. My mother's been in luxury residential real estate for as long as I can remember. And my father did a lot in commercial and industrial. Hmm. And when the JOBS Act passed, I looked at the bill and said, you know, there's a huge opportunity to do real estate crowdfunding and to bring real estate to a broader scope of investors, even high net worth investors who had never had access to that real estate before. I'd always wanted to start a tech company, but I didn't have a technology background at all. I only had this finance background. Um, but I, I coupled sort of my finance skills with my co-founder, who's our chief technology officer, and we started building Realty Mogul as a response to the changing legislation. And also what we saw going on in the market, where you've got all of these investors who are thirsty for yield, and they're making less than 1% in the banks, and they're looking for a place to, to place their capital. Okay, so you, you saw the Jobs Act, but uh, obviously you're, you started Realty Mogul before anything was really, really implemented. So you, you must have thought that there was enough of an opportunity even without the Jobs Act. Is that true? Right. We did a lot of research around, you know, size of the market. And you've got somewhere between eight and nine million accredited investors in, in the mm-hmm. marketplace who are potential buyers of, of real estate investments with us. 
So we thought that that was a large enough market. What the Jobs Act really did for us, Peter, is not actually the legislative change. It's the, it's the market awareness and the brand awareness. You know, people are getting more and more comfortable transacting over the Internet. This concept of, of crowdfunding or crowd investing, which had, it had never really existed in a term before, but is the same thing that, you know, the lending clubs and the prospers of the world have been doing for the last seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. But I really think that, that that attention from the media and that focus from the press has allowed us to scale and grow as quickly as we have. Right, right. Okay. So let's let's talk a little bit about the – get into the nitty-gritty here and talk. Um, you, you, you mentioned you have two kinds of deals. You do equity and you do debt. Can you explain how how both of these work? How do you structure the deals that you're that you're putting on your platform? Sure. So let's start with equity. On our equity transactions, our investors are buying interests in a limited liability company. Mm-hmm. So they're investing, you know, ten thousand dollars. They're buying ten thousand dollars of that limited liability company. That limited liability company, in turn, owns an underlying asset. Right. It might own an apartment building, a shopping center, a self-storage facility, an office building. But it's linked between the investor's dollar and the underlying asset. Um, on our equity business to date, we're focusing on cash flowing commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at projects that can provide a distribution back to investors within the first quarter or two. So the first three to six months. And we funded shopping centers. The, the, one of the latest acquisitions that we did was a shopping center out, outside of San Francisco with some really big brand name tenants. There was Safeway, CVS, Subway, McDonald's, AutoZone, sort of an example of a retail transaction. We've also funded a variety of multifamily transactions. So apartment buildings with 200 or 300 tenants that are well diversified, well located, and have this element of cash flow for the investor to make money off of. Okay. So they're structured as you know limited liability companies, and we always partner with a third-party real estate company. We tend to call them sponsors. These sponsors are the managing members of the limited liability company. They're making the day-to-day decisions. They're operating the real estate, and they typically have anywhere from you know a couple hundred million in asset center management upwards to a couple billion in asset center management. So we're partnering with established players in the market to get diversification in in the equity. Okay, and so just to be 100% clear, you are doing a different, a new LLC for every single different property that you have on your platform, is that correct? Correct. On the equity side, yeah, yeah there's, there's no commingling. They're all special purpose entities. Okay, and so then what about the debt side? So on the debt side of our business, we are originating loans from a pretty diverse network of borrowers. Um, we do both residential rehab loans and commercial real estate loans. So a borrower will come onto the website, fill out our lending application, uh, and then it'll go into our underwriting group. So we'll make a determination on, you know, are we comfortable with the loan? Are we not comfortable with the loan before putting that up onto the platform? And similar to our equity business, our, many of our investors are buying fractional shares in that loan. So they're deciding, you know, I want to put 10000 in this loan, 10000 in that loan, 10000 in that loan. We also sell whole loans. Okay. So we've seen, you know, a demand for whole loans in the marketplace typically from your larger investors who you know, are less concerned about the diversification or have more capital to place. So we're just starting a, our whole loan buying program as well. Uh, but we can do either way, either, either fractionalized notes or a whole loan. And so I, I imagine that the debt deals on your platform are a smaller dollar value than the equity deals. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, our average loan right now is about $250,000. So okay. they, they are much smaller than the equity transactions. 
but you know you'll we'll end up doing a, a higher volume of them because they are a smaller dollar amount. Right, and how, how does it? How is the mix um, coming you know, coming out now? I mean, what have what what have you put on your platform to date? Mix between debt and equity. So, from a product perspective, we've done a lot more loans. We funded mm-hmm. a lot more loans because they're they're smaller dollar amounts. From a dollar perspective, we've done more dollars in equity. You know, we might do an equity transaction that's a three and a half, four, five million dollar raise. So to do you know as, as much in dollar volume on the debt side, you'd have to do a lot more loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, I think that you know there's there's a huge amount of interest from borrowers on the debt side. So I think that you're going to start to see that dollar amount um, become sort of 50-50, 50% of the business on equity, 50% of the business on debt. We're also starting to do larger loans. So for our commercial real estate loans, we're willing to go all the way up to 10 million on a single commercial loan. Wow. So if those volumes start to increase, you know, I think that you're going to start seeing an even more focus placed on the debt business. Right. Okay. So then you you, know, you started off, it seems like, you know, you started off with single family rehabs and that were the first deals on your platform. And full disclosure, I did, I was an investor in one of those deals, um, which went very well. But you know, it seems like now you've got, you know, you did the Hard Rock Hotel and you, you've got these shopping centers and lots of, com- you know, bigger commercial space. You know, how, how do you decide on the mix of deals and, and are you, do you have like an end goal in mind of what kind of mix that's going to be? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We started in the early days with these smaller transactions to get some liquidity. You know, the hardest part about being a, a senior executive at a, at a P2P company like ours is you have to have liquidity or it just doesn't work, right? Yep. You have to get over the hump of you have deals and you have investors and how do you match them? So we started with, with much smaller transactions. Uh, we really like the residential rehab business. So we've got, you know, a focus on that. We're going to continue to do loans in that realm. But we also like the commercial business. So you're going to see larger transactions come out on the platform. I think part of it as well, Peter, is what we're seeing on the investor side. You know, we've got a host of family offices and some smaller institutions now that are investing on the platform and they want to take down larger transactions. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, we're, we're adjusting our, our mix and our, our product type mix based on really investor demand. So as we learn more from investors, you know, what are they looking for? But I think you'll, you'll continue to see good diversification out of us. It's really important for me that we have a well-diversified platform. So you'll continue to see residential rehab. You'll start to see more commercial loans. Um, and you'll and you'll continue to see a variety of transactions on the equity side. And the reason why I think that we're capable of doing that is because we're really relying on these sponsors. You know, our bar for our sponsors, which are the real estate companies who manage the assets, acquire the assets, and and sort of do all the day to day, these are established players in the market. So I'm not claiming that our company is an expert in every product type and every geography. But what we do is partner with individuals and companies who have a specific geographic focus and a specific property type focus. And we can get really comfortable investing in a market like Dallas, Texas, when we are there with an operator who all they do is focus on Dallas, Texas right. and Goldman mm-hmm. Family, for example. Right. Um, so I think you'll continue to see good diversification. So and are these, do these sponsors then bring you the deals? I mean, how, how are you sourcing the deals from both the residential and the commercial side? So we're sourcing sponsors and borrowers, and they're bringing us the transactions. Our aim is to build really deep relationships with our sponsors and with our borrowers to do a lot of repeat business with them. But at the end of the day, they're bringing us the transactions. They typically have the transaction under contract, and then they bring that transaction to us while they're looking for financing, which could be anywhere from you know 10 days on a residential rehab to 
21 days or 30 days on a commercial loan mm-hmm. all the way up to, you know, 60 or 90 days if they're looking for equity for a big commercial transaction. Okay. So then, and then why do these borrowers and these sponsors choose to do business with you guys as opposed to, you know, traditional sources or even other, you know, your competitors online? What's, how are you able to bring those deals to the table? value proposition is always sort of shifting, but there's there's two value propositions that are really top of mind for me right now because of some emails that I got over the weekend from a couple of, from one of our borrowers in particular. Because we're an online platform, our ability to execute quickly, I think is unparalleled in the industry. Mm-hmm. When you look at investment banks that are raising capital and you look at, you know, offline lenders that are that are lending to borrowers and they just cannot match us with speed. Mm-hmm. Because we have this online technology, because we're pinging various data sources through various APIs that we've built on the on the technology system. I think it's it's speed is is number one. Number two is user experience. And part of that is related to speed, but part of it actually isn't. I mean when you talk to these borrowers who are either getting private money or you talk to these sponsors who are raising capital through really inefficient channels like friends and family, it's a miserable user experience for them. They're off taking coffee meetings and off getting beers with their investors. And and our proposition is very different. It's Come online, give us your information, and we do the rest of the hard work. Okay, and so what, what is some of that hard work? I mean, do you, you obviously, you know, you, you look at some deals, I imagine, and you say there's no way I'm going to touch that. What qualifies as a good deal for your platform? Yeah, right now we're funding about 5% of what we see, um, which is a pretty low percentage, but I think is, is you know, the market gets more mature and, and people get more familiar with the types of transactions that we will fund, that number will go up. But on our Equity business, it's all about cash flow. So is the property cash flowing? Is it well located? And is it well diversified? So we don't like transactions typically if there's only a couple of tenants. We like, you know, 300 unit apartment buildings or 2000 unit self-storage facilities, which are both examples of things that we funded. Mm-hmm. So cash flow is really key for us on, on the equity side and how we do our underwriting. And we take these to investment committee. So we're underwriting the transactions. We're looking at economic data. We're looking at environmental data. We're looking at, you know, historical cash flows and projected cash flows and, and truly underwriting these like a, like a private equity real estate firm. On the borrower side and on the debt side, you know, we're using a lot of data sources to make underwriting decisions. So we're looking at economic data, crime data, population data, and asset-specific data. So not only where is it in the neighborhood, but when was the property renovated? How many bedrooms does it have? How many bathrooms does it have? So we're doing, you know, true underwriting on all of these assets. And then we're sharing all that data with the investors. So we don't believe that we're the smartest people in the room. We think that investors are, are really, really intelligent. And if we give them the data, they can make informed decisions on that data as well. Okay. And then I presume, do you have a minimum like loan to value ratio that you will, that you will not touch? I mean, what does it vary depending on all the different variables? I mean, what, how, how do you decide to nix a deal? So we've got, you know, hundreds of pages of, of credit guidelines on how we're determining whether or not we're going to do a transaction. And, and those guidelines change, whether it's equity, residential rehab, commercial rehab, or commercial stabilized. Um, on, our, on our debt products for rehabs, we're typically looking at cost, right? Many of these borrowers are acquiring these properties ideally below market value, and they're going to go in and renovate and rehab these properties. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at the all-in cost that it's going to take to, to facilitate that rehab. And what the potential aftermarket repair value is of that asset. So we're getting 
you know, appraisals, we're getting broker price opinions done by appraisers. So we've got a lot of data before going into that asset. On our on our stabilized products, so on our on our equity transactions and on our debt for stabilized commercial real estate, it's a little bit different, right? You're you may not be employing a value add strategy. We're willing to lend up to a certain amount of value. We're willing to to go into certain markets. Other markets we're not willing to go into. So all of this kind of plugs into this concept of using data and a lot of data to make credit decisions, either on the equity side or on the debt side. Right. Okay. Okay. So then, I mean, one of the things that I know that from investors I talk to that's very, you know, it's very attractive as an asset class, the, you know, real estate, unlike, unlike the lending clubs and prospers of the world, we, you actually get a, an asset that is real and that's backing the loan. So can you, how do you structure these, you know, like the security interest that you are taking in, in these properties? How do you structure that? And uh, does it differ between the debt deals and the equity deals? I imagine it does. So can you, just give give the listeners a little bit of a background on that. Yeah, absolutely. So on our on our debt transactions, it depends if the investor is buying a whole loan versus a, a portion of a loan. Um, if the investor is buying a whole loan, you know they're they're going to be holding title on on that real estate asset. So mm-hmm. they're going to have you know a, a fully secured note against whatever that asset may be, whether it's a, a residential asset or a commercial asset. In the model where an investor is buying shares in a specific note. They have payments that are backed by the underlying payments of a secured real estate loan. So not that dissimilar from kind of the Lending Club and Prosper model. However, in the event that there is a foreclosure or some issue with the, with the transaction, we can take the property over and look to, look to liquidate that property. And the underlying investor would get their pro rata share of whatever that liquidation value is. Right. right. So they are, they are holding a note that is backed by the payments from a secured asset mm-hmm. um, on, a, on a fractionalized basis. On our equity transactions, the, the interest that we're holding is an LLC interest. So because we're investing in cash flow and commercial real estate for our equity, there's typically a bank, a traditional you know, commercial bank involved that is providing the debt. So that bank is going to be holding the security interest. They're going to be in first position on title. Um, but we then hold an LLC interest. So we're subordinated to the bank, albeit, you know, you're in an equity position, so you'd expect to be subordinated to a debt position. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, sure. So then I know you haven't been in business a long time, but you've done quite a few deals. Are all of your deals in good standing right now? I mean, do you, have you have you had anything bad happen? And if not, then what, what are your plans for actually something, you know, when if some kind of deal starts to go south? Yeah, so we've we've been in business about 15 months or so, and we've had 17 loans go full cycle. So we've mm-hmm. had you know 17 loans that we originated the loans and paid off. All of those have paid off in full. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no no issues with any of those. All of our loans are are performing otherwise. And on our equity transactions, things are performing as well. You know, there's one there's one story that comes to mind and. It's a retail property that we bought with a really strong operator. The operator has done about $3 billion in transactions. And we acquire this asset. We're going to do some minor renovations, well-diversified, well-located. And the fire marshal comes in and says, you know, we need you to sprinkle the entire property and sprinkle with, with fire sprinklers. And, you know, that was unanticipated. Mm-hmm. So on that asset, for example, we're going to be a little bit off of our cash flow projections, but we had the reserves to do, to do the, the renovations. So on a transaction like that, what you're doing is you're taking dollars that you had reserved for later in the transaction and spending them up front. So that'll impact uh, impact returns a little bit, but that's just the nature of commercial real estate, right? There's there's always flexibility. You have to kind of be flexible and you have to over-reserve. So one of the things 
that we've required from the beginning on our equity transactions is that our sponsors are reserving for things like that, unforeseen things that come up. So thankfully, we had reserves there and, you know, the transaction is still performing, albeit our returns are going to be slightly off of off of projections. Right. But on our debt transactions, you know, our debt products are performing and, you know, we've we've been, you know, really excited to see these transactions pay off, go full cycle so that we have a, a track record for our investors to look at and for the investors who are involved in that. I mean, the the majority of investors who are in those transactions are taking that capital and reinvesting in another transaction. So it allows them to kind of minimize this concept of cash drag right, where they have right. cash sitting on the sidelines because we've got availability of new product for them to roll into. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Okay. So then, and assuming one of those debt transactions does don't hit their projections, I mean, we don't. We all know what happened in the you know financial crisis um, where lots of things went south. I mean, what what are the tools that you have in place so that um, you can protect your the principal of your investor money for the you know on the debt side? Yeah, the, the number one thing is to take action. You know, there there is a difference that a lot of people talk about between sort of retail investing and, and institutional investing. And a lot of our sponsors even talk about this, where they can go in, you know, and buy a property that was owned by some sort of a mom and pop and turn that property around with sort of institutional management and institutional caliber thinking. And we're no different. You know, if there is a late payment, we are going to move to notices. If we, you know, move to a foreclosure proceeding, we're going to deal with that swiftly. Mm-hmm. Um, really, if you have this institutional mindset, it is you have to take care of it the minute you think that there's a problem. We've got contingency plans written. We've, we've never dealt with a foreclosure yet. It will happen eventually, right? Sure. I mean, there, there's real risk in all of our transactions. We want our investors to know that. But the, you know, the policy that we have as a company is you deal with it transparently and quickly. And you let the borrower know. You let the borrower know that you're going to you know, use full recourse in the law. And for us, that means bringing in, in place a secondary servicer as well. So we've got alignment with a number of servicing firms, depending on what state we would have to do a foreclosure on, whether it's a judicial foreclosure state or a non-judicial foreclosure state. But I think the most important thing, Peter, is to, to move swiftly mm-hmm. and not, not skip a beat on this stuff, right? It's, you can't give borrowers five or six or seven chances the way that maybe a mom and pop investor will. It's, you know, the minute that you see an issue, you, you jump on and you deal with it. And you have to have that sort of institutional caliber of servicing or you run into issues. Yep, yep, fair enough. So let, let's switch gears and talk about the investor side of your business. So who is the typical investor? Are these people who are also, you know, that they're lending club and prosper or then they're, or they're just moving over to diversify their portfolio or are they completely unique to you guys? I mean, who was a typical investor on Realty Mobile? I think that we've got quite a bit of overlap with Prosper and Lending Club. Um, it's, it's been really interesting to watch. And I you know, love interacting with our investors. It's one of the most rewarding things that I do as the CEO of this firm. And I've heard a lot of people say, hey, you know, I started on Lending Club five years ago, and this is so great. Now I can get diversification across real estate, um, which is fantastic for us. I mean, we, we tend to see most of our investors fall into one of four buckets. Bucket number one is institutional. So they're looking for diversification across real estate credits, and they want to use us as sort of an origination platform for them to get that diversification. Mm-hmm. Bucket two is sort of high tech. So these are Google software engineers. These are marketing folks at Yahoo, individuals at Facebook and Amazon that are high tech. They tend to skew a little bit younger. 
Um, but they want to invest and diversify across real estate and they don't have any other means with which to do it, right? They don't have kind of the, the country club network necessarily. And they're looking to diversify with smaller dollar amounts into a variety of different real estate properties. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so you obviously, you mentioned the Jobs Act before, and I just wanted to go back and revisit that on, from, on the investor side. You, know, you you talked about accredited investors. You know, with, with Title Three of the Jobs Act, which I know hasn't been implemented yet, you can you know there there's a possibility of going out to you know regular investors. Is that on your radar? I mean, what are your are you, are you planning on sticking with accredited investors? Where where do you stand on that? You know, it's it's really challenging to see where the regulations have just shaken out for us. And what I mean by that is, in, in the current proposal in the Jobs Act in Title Three. There's a lot of limitations that make that business challenging, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're limited to a million dollar capital raise. You have to do audited financials for anything over a half a million dollars. So that it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for our business. You know, we're watching it very closely. We are, you know, ideally going to be looking at some shifts in that regulation, which makes it more palpable for a company like ours. But in the interim, you know, we're focused on accredited and institutional investors until we see some legislation that really makes this work. And not only work for the platforms, but also work for the investor, right? We want the ability for all of our investors to diversify. But what's going to happen, I think, with what, where, where the current regulations are is you're going to have so much added cost and added overhead onto taking on a non-accredited investor that their returns are going to suffer. Right. And at some point, if the returns suffer, that investor shouldn't even be in that asset class, right? I mean, it's all about risk-reward, and that's mm-hmm. really concerning to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have seen some some articles about potential changes, I mean, like revisiting the Jobs Act and Title Three, because I, I've heard that from so many people saying, you know what, it's just, it's just not... It's not palatable the way it stands right now, which is a shame because I know, you know, many of, many of the Lend Academy listeners are not accredited investors. And I know that many of them will be chomping at the bit to invest, uh, with someone like you. And, uh, hopefully that will, that will change at some point. So let's just ask about the, you mentioned returns to investors. You know, you said that you've had 17 deals that have been paid back in full. So, so what are the actual returns that you are, that you have given to your investors on those deals? And what is that, has that met your expectations? Yeah. So all of those are debt transactions. Mm-hmm. The returns range between 8%, 9%, and 10%. So depending on the loan, it's either 8%, 9%, 10%, and they're all 100% performing. So, you know, if we were shooting for eight, we hit eight. If we were shooting for 10, we hit 10. So, you know, all, all good there. Again, always risk in transactions, but so far we've got a great track record. And then so on the equity side, obviously, you, you know, that, that's a longer term investment. What, what, are your, what are the return goals there? Yeah, our, our, none of our equity transactions have, have fully paid off yet because none of them have been sold and, yep. and none were expected to be sold this early. But, you know, it ranges anywhere from a sort of 7 to 9% cash on cash return. And then on our equity transactions, we're typically looking at a 15% IRR or higher. So if the asset is sold and you include, you know, appreciation on what those return characteristics look like, we're usually looking for about a 15% internal rate of return. Okay, that's that's yeah, that's a nice deal. Obviously, you've got to have to you have to wait longer for your money on that. But um, right, yes. Yeah, so and I, I think I heard you say that you have more investors on your platform than the others. I mean, how many how many investors do you have today? So we are over ten thousand accredited investors on the platform. Wow! Yeah, that's 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 quite impressive for fifteen months in business. I think uh, I don't think Lending Club or Prosper had anything like that in their first fifteen months. So that's that's great. And 
I wanted to ask you about the Canaan Partners deal. I mean, you raised $9 million from a pretty prominent VC in this space. You know, Canaan, uh, Canaan Partners were very early investors in Lending Club. They've been with Lending Club the whole way. I know Dan Sipperin sits on their board. Are you, you know, I guess, one, why did you do the deal with them instead of, you know, some of the many others I'm sure you, you courted? And are you, yeah, how are they helping you in as far as like knowledge goes, given their deep deep understanding of this industry? Yeah, I, I think you know you you hit the nail on the head, Peter, which is we did the deal with them because they were early investors in Lending Club and they've been with Lending Club the entire way. You know, when when you go to compete in the world, if you have proprietary information that other people don't have, you're going to have an easier chance of competing and winning. And that's really, really important to us, right, is, you know, what knowledge can we take from Lending Club and from Canaan's experience with Lending Club to grow our own business? Um, there's a lot of similarities between our businesses. There's also a lot of differences, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a different asset class. It was a different time. But there's, there's tons of lessons that we're learning from Canaan's experience with Lending Club that would take us a lot longer to learn. Not to say that they're sharing, you know, highly confidential information right, from Lending I'm Club. Sure. <laughs> they wouldn't do that as a firm. But even stuff that's come out publicly about the way that Lending Club structured their transactions or the way that Lending Club has seen, you know, this this growth trajectory. I mean, a, a prime example is sort of how do you balance um, institutions on the platform versus high net worth accredited investors on the platform? You know, that's a conversation that, that is a conversation Lending Club has had many, many times, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's all of these sort of nuggets of, you know, information that we're gleaning from having Canaan involved. And that, that's spot on why we chose them as our, as our venture partner. So is this, are you going to be doing in a similar way to what Lending Club has done? And this is your first funding round and, and then we'll see another one next year and another one the year after that. I mean, are you planning on, you know, going back and, and, and raising more money sometime soon? I think that, you know, my, my answer to that is we've got a really, really big vision. This is not a, a small family-run company for us. This mm-hmm. is a, you know, large, large business that we want to grow into something really big. And in order to do that, you need capital. Now, whether that is funded through revenues, because we're generating revenues as a business, and we have been from day one, because I'm a believer in, you know, building a real business, or whether that is, you know, bringing on additional venture or private equity partners kind of remains to be seen. But I've got a big vision, and I and I really think that the market is ripe for a a real estate player who does things a little bit differently through the use of technology, and that's what's really exciting to me about being the CEO of this company. And I think that that means that we're going to be bringing on more capital, but you got to balance it, right? It needs to be right. the right time for the business. It needs to be the right time in the market. Right now, we're sitting on nine million dollars that we that we're deploying, uh, and and really focusing on sort of hiring and, and building the engine and building the operations that will allow us to be the business that I know we can be. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then what? just tell us a little bit about that vision then. What what are you planning for Realty Mogul? And wh- where will it be in five years' time or 10 years' time? Yeah, I'd love to hear what your, what your grand plans are. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we're building a brand. You know, mm-hmm. we're building a brand that stands for fantastic user experience, investor protection, operational excellence, accountability, and execution. And that is a brand I think that the market needs, right? Investors want access to real estate transactions in a really streamlined way. Mm -hmm. Borrowers and sponsors want access to capital and reporting tools in a really, really streamlined way. So brand is very top of mind. I think that Lending Club has done a fantastic job building a brand. 
And I think one of the ways that they did that was by maintaining really high credit quality. I mean, even in even in their tiered model, right, A, B, C, D, E, F, there's still, you, you know what the credit quality is. And, and that's really something that's important to us as we grow this business. But it's also size and scale. You know, we want to build something really big. I want to be able to say, you know, we're doing billions of dollars in transactions a year and still have strong credit quality and still have a brand that people trust and believe in and still have a brand where the user experience is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's, you know, making sure that the foundation is set appropriately and then being able to scale over the next five years to billions of dollars in transactions a year. And and where that goes, you know, from there, who knows? Well, that's, uh, I, I wish you all the best, Julian. That's, uh, it's certainly an exciting time for you guys and for the industry as a whole. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. Okay, great. See ya. Take care. Well, there you have it. Realty Mogul is certainly a company to watch. And I feel like uh, if they continue to execute well, you know, they've got some great backers. I, I imagine they are going to be a major force in real estate uh, in the future. I just want to leave you with uh, these closing thoughts that I also shared in my presentation at Lendit. And, and that is, you know, real estate, I think, is an important part of every investor's portfolio. And, you know, REITs have been the primary way for people to access this uh, asset class, uh, that aside from actually investing in property one by one. Now, what online real estate platforms provide is a way to diversify your real estate investments across multiple properties in a very simple, slick fashion. And that's why I believe you're going to see money in the long term coming out of REITs going into these real estate platforms online. It's it's simple. It provides all the benefits and you can pick and choose. And you can actually build your own private REIT by picking and choosing the kinds of properties that you want to invest in. So I, I'm very bullish on uh, on this particular sector of the market. On that note, uh, I will sign off. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye.